Welcome to Vermont Trail Chatter, a podcast about the Vermont trails community hosted by the Catamount Trail Association and Mountain Ops. Today, we're sitting down with Carolyn Patton. Carolyn is the owner and chief apparel engineer at Mola Hoods, a small clothing manufacturer based in Richmond, Vermont, focused on conscientious sourcing and sustainable production. In this episode, we talk about Carolyn's history making gear, her transition to full-time apparel making, and we learn where the name Mola Hoods comes from. All right, let's get into it. Carolyn, welcome to Vermont Trail Chatter. I understand you're just getting back from a little time away from the sewing machine. Uh, What does the owner of a small outdoor apparel company like to do when you get away? (laughs) Yeah, so we we actually just got back from a mountain bike camping trip. We went up to the Valle Bras de Nord. My French is terrible, so I'm sure there's a better way to say that. But um. Yeah, we just got a group of friends together and we went up and camped and rode the trails back in there. And uh, it was a nice little getaway. There's no cell service back there. So it was a nice little tune out for a couple of days. That's awesome. Do you like mountain biking is one of your primary like adventure sports that you participate in? Yeah, I'm definitely I'm definitely newer to mountain biking. Um, I got a bike uh, like five years ago. Um, my partner is super into it and our friend group has been getting progressively more into it. Um, so it's, it's been, uh, on the up and up for me for sure. (laughs) That's great. And then what other, what other kind of things like being in Vermont, what other kind of outdoor sports or adventures do you guys like to participate in? Yeah, I will. So I, I've kind of like dabbled in a little bit of everything. I definitely like this time of year, I connect the most to like the water sports, anything you can do on Lake Champlain. If we get a breezy day, I am going to take time off and go kiting. I'll make up that time later. Uh, I'm pretty into sailing. I spent a lot of time doing that over the years. And that's actually what brought me to Vermont initially. Um, And yeah, I mean, winter time, snowboarding, backcountry riding, that's that's pretty much the go-to. Same deal there. If we get a powder day, I'm probably not going to go and sit by the sewing machine. Um, but yeah, those are those are kind of the primary. Mountain biking's pretty big. Um, well, it's good to hear that you're you know you're participating in a variety of things, especially you know considering as at Mola Hoods, you guys are producing outdoor apparel for kind of all of these different adventures. It seems. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, I I think a lot of people who work in the outdoor industry, it's part of it is, and it's an excuse that you get to go, you know, test out the gear and that's, yeah, okay, I'm working right now. I'm testing out my gear, making sure it holds up and uh, can handle elements and works well and all that. Um, It's a, it's a good blend of life and work. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to convince me. (laughs) So Let's let's talk a little bit more about Mola Hoods. Um, first, I'm curious about the name. Um, how did you come up with it, and does it have any kind of significant meaning? Yeah, yeah. So, Mo- so Mola is the small business that I created, basically out of the idea that um, I believe that quality apparel can be made right in the area that you're using it. Um, and so, you know, for me, that meant like the mountains and the lake are both really you know, important elements and all the sports and activities that I enjoy and do. Um, and so Mo comes from mountains and Lock comes from lakes. Uh, you know, pretty, pretty simple name, but 
I think I think it gets at the point of what I'm trying to do. It's really interesting to hear like how that comes to be and that it does have like there's an intent there's some intention behind how you came up with the name and so uh, I don't know I'm it's always curious to like learn those little stories. How long have, I guess how long have you been operating Mola Hoods? Like when did you start going? Yeah, so I've I've been creating gear for a long time. Um, my mom taught me how to sew when I was probably 12-ish, something like that. I ran a little business in high school and I've just been kind of tinkering with sewing and pattern making and gear for, you know, most of, most of my adult life, um, you know, and before that. And I was working in the sailing industry for, you know, after college and up until the pandemic. And part of that meant that I was traveling every weekend. Uh, I was coaching the sailing team at the University of Vermont. And, um, you know, when the pandemic hit, we all of a sudden weren't traveling every weekend. And I had a ton of extra time. And, you know, the messaging at that point was pretty much like, don't go outside and go do sports. So I was kind of all of a sudden like, "Uh oh, now what do I do? Um, And so I just started making gear. That was, you know, the next like fun thing on my list to do. And um, pretty quickly, you know, my friends were enjoying it. They were testing it, giving me feedback. And I was developing more sizes and more styles. And that's really when MOLA got started was pretty early in the pandemic. And um, like, I've always kind of had working in other jobs. I've had kind of like half-baked ideas for businesses I wanted to start. And, um, you know, I've always kind of jotted them down in notebooks, but never really pursued it any further. And this just kind of seemed like the right time and opportunity was there to just go for it. And, you know, probably a combination of listening to too many, like how I built this podcast. I'm like, oh, I can do this. I definitely got it. Um, So yeah, just kind of started putting in the time then and really taking that attitude of, uh, you know, just keep trying and messing up and trying and messing up and trying again. And uh, now we're at where we are and hopefully going to continue going forward for a number of years. That's great. I want to hear more about the transition from dabbling with gear and like selling it to your friends to kind of committing to kind of making a a full bit like the full business. But before that, I'm curious about the like business you ran when you were younger, when you were 12, like in high school, what, what did you do? What were you doing back then? Yeah, honestly, I'm a little embarrassed about it now, but it's it's called designs by Caroline. And, um, I, I was making like little tote bags and ribbon belts and monogramming things for my friends. Uh, you know, I would, I would basically just, you know, kind of sell out of the school locker room. I had a little order form and I'd bring them around and kind of ask people what they wanted. And they were psyched to, you know, my friends in high school were psyched to know who was actually making their stuff. That was, that was pretty new experience to them. And, um, yeah, it was really a fun little project. I don't, I, you know, I don't think I made anything off of it. I think it probably cost my parents more to help me run that business than, you know, I actually made from it, but definitely provided, you know, that kind of platform and, um, you know, looking, looking back, it, it makes sense that I, that I've started a business. Both of my parents started their own businesses and, um, you know, I really had both of them as role models in that regard. No, that's great. I mean, I, well, and even though you might not have made any money, like I dabble in a little bit of sewing myself and make my own, 
uh, bags for bike packing and stuff. And when I was starting to learn how to sew, like, I didn't know what I was doing. So if anything, like starting so early and doing that, I mean, you must have picked up a lot of just learned how to work the machine and work with fabric and do all those things that you're now, you know, are kind of like, I don't know if they're second nature to you now, but I imagine they're, they're much easier the more time you put in. Yeah, absolutely. And also too, I mean, when I was, I mean, when I was 12, I mean, what year, I don't remember, I don't really know what year that was. I graduated high school in 2007. So this was like pre 2000, you know, you couldn't just look everything up on YouTube. Um, or if you could, I didn't, I didn't realize it yet. Um, so, you know, there was definitely a lot in those early days of just kind of trial and error, figuring it out and trying to figure out how to problem solve, um, which now like there's definitely a fair bit of that, but I can also, you know, if I have a question, I can go to the internet. Um, so it created a lot of those foundations for sure. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, it is nice to be able to look up stuff. Like I definitely learned a lot uh, by looking stuff up online while I was kind of like developing my uh bags but uh i also just know that like you have to get in there and do it and like no matter no amount of watching something or looking stuff up online will kind of like replace just time spent you know using a machine or doing the actual deed you know there's just so much i don't know it's just like there are definitely fabrics i've played with that i'm like i'll never touch again because i just don't have the patience for them and uh it's good to know that stuff and i imagine you kind of have similar kind of insights into what works well, what doesn't work well and how to like work with different materials. Yeah. And that's, that's a never ending process. I mean, it's still, you know, Polar Tech is one of the primary suppliers that I use and they have so many different materials and they all respond a little differently. So, you know, and it's, it's a matter of adjusting some of the settings on your machines, but you know, a lot of people who are making stuff out of Polar Tech aren't necessarily using the exact machine I have. So it's constantly tweaking and adjusting stuff. So I want to go back to the, your transition. It sounded like during the pandemic, you had some extra time on your hands. And you So you kind of leaned into kind of making apparel and gear for yourself and for friends. And then how did that, did you immediately go into like start a business mode or did it was there kind of a buildup before you kind of were like, hey, I'm going to do that. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on this and see if I can make this work. Yeah, it it definitely happened pretty quickly. You know, like I said, I had kind of these half-baked ideas for a long time. Um, and it always, you know, my business plans was always making something. You know, it was it, it was never like raising investment or capital to go, you know, hire other people to do stuff for me. It was always making something. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the pandemic, it really, it kind of opened my eyes to like a lot of different issues. Um, you know, just living, we were living in Richmond at the time and, um, you know, like everybody, we were having trouble getting some supplies, you know, you go to replace a mountain bike part and it was back ordered for a couple months and, um, it's just started to think a lot more about where the items that we were purchasing were coming from, uh, reading a lot more about capitalism and kind of the, some of the downsides of, you know, everything being funneled into, you know, a couple major companies and really experiencing that firsthand was kind of like, all right, well, you know, I, this is a bigger problem than I can fix, but I can choose to not continue to 
contribute to this problem. And so, you know, like for me, the outdoor sports are, I don't want to say they're everything in my life, but they are a very big part. They're, you know, my entire network of friends come from that world. And, um, it, it, it just, it really, it felt important for, to support locally made products. And I saw a hole in the market with base layers and apparel, you know, there is like Skeeta makes really awesome hats and buffs and that stuff, you know, darn tough Scott socks, pretty on lock. There's, there's a lot of great local companies, um, to look up to. And it, it seemed like the environment in Vermont was good for making stuff here. And, um, you know, that spot was there and it's, it was a skill I had and enjoyed doing. So I figured I'd just kind of go for it. Um, I, I was doing both jobs at the same time for a little while, you know, kind of starting to grow Mola and doing that kind of like as a side gig going like, okay, you know, this would be a nice little extra, extra thing to do that I enjoy. Um, and I could kind of do it on the hours that worked for my weird coaching schedule. Um, and, but then, you know, I kind of like, I hit a, I hit a wall with coaching. I, you know, I think working for any bigger company or university that, I, I don't think I'm the only person who's experienced that kind of point where I felt like I couldn't really do much to grow the program anymore. Um, so I, I kind of impulsively quit uh, and maybe wasn't the smartest decision, but uh, at that point I just decided to go head on in with MOLA and figured I could always pick up other side gigs from there. So it started out as the side gig idea and then pretty quickly after that impulsive decision, uh, became the primary and that's awesome that's great it's good to hear you just committing also it seems like since you were 12 you've been kind of primed uh, to have your own business so it seemed like that was a relatively easy and comfortable decision you've kind of kind of developed over time and just a comfort with like having owning a business I think a lot of people are scared about owning or running their own business and that kind of prevents them from engaging that way but it sounds like you've kind of tore those barriers down a long time ago yeah. I mean, it's also too, it's like, you know, you kind of, I think, I think I kind of just knew myself at that point where, you know, one of the good things you get from doing all these sports, you're like, you know, you're going to get into mountain biking. You're not going to improve unless you're going every day and like really committing to it. And you're not going to improve if you keep doing demo bikes, you got to buy the bike and you have to put in the investment. And I just kind of knew that that's how it's worked in every other aspect of my life. So I just kind of went for it. And so when you, once you made the jump into full-time MOA, how are things, do you know, do you remember when that was? Yeah, that was, um, I think that was 2021. So I, I had really only started the business like the year before. And how far, um, and like how, when did you know that it was working? You know, like once you made that jump, at what point did you know that like, oh, this is, I'm. I mean, I guess I'm assuming that you're, it's working. Yeah. I, mean, I, I still have, you know, like moments of panic, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm primarily, I've been primarily a fleece business. And so trying to, you know, connect that through in the summertime, it's, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I, like, I have backup jobs in mind, you know, I'm kind of like, you know, I can always go clean boats. I could always go do this. I could always go watch somebody's dog. Um, so I, I kind of have backup plans, like if I have a lull, um, but I really enjoy making clothes. So I work hard to 
avoid those lulls. And I, you know, I basically haven't really had to do a whole lot of extra side gigs. Um, but you know, I've been putting in, <laughs> I've been putting in a lot of hours into making this happen full time. Um, it's, I think most people would have trouble justifying the amount of hours to income earned that I'm currently doing. But I, I think it, I think it, like the way I've laid out my business plan, it, it should work. Um, but I'm not taking any investment. I really don't have any loans. I've got like a small line of credit and, um, that's, you know, I'm just kind of trying to grow slowly and living, living frugally and spending more time camping in Canada than flying to Japan to ski, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, no, it's, it's smart. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's a really great way to go about it. Um, and so how, like, oh, I've been on your website and you, it seems like you have a lot of products. So like, what is, do you, do you have a strategy for kind of, uh, tidying yourself over during the summer months? It seems like you do have some warmer weather, uh, gear available on there. Um, is that, was that, was that, was that something that you had already developed and added, or was that something you developed specifically for kind of the warmer months of the year? Yeah. I mean, I definitely developed it more out of, you know, a desire to have, to make my own you know, gear for the summertime. Um, it's a lot of the same patterns. I've definitely done some tweaking with, uh, you know, different, different materials. Some of the tougher, like some of the more durable summer weight materials only stretch two ways so that, you know, I need to tweak some of my patterns to adjust for that. Um, I think there's a need for, you know, summer, summer materials, you know, there's a lot of people are participating in lake activities all summer. You need the UV resistance. Uh, a lot of people going for hikes and going mountain biking and, um, you know, a lot of that stuff still, you know, there are some local companies making similar products, but they're not necessarily producing them in Vermont. Um, and that's, that's really, you know, the mission behind what I'm doing is I really want the gear to be produced where it's worn. Um, and I think as soon as you make that compromise to produce it elsewhere, it just kind of, it drops off the mission of what I'm trying to do a little bit. Um, that summer market is definitely more difficult. You know, you look at what most people are wearing, you know, you go mountain biking. A lot of people are wearing like the free t-shirt that they got at whatever event. Um, it's, it's hard to make that sale happen. You know, I'm saying like, Hey, the cheapest I can do a shirt, a t-shirt for is $45 that's a lot more expensive than, you know, people have gotten used to. Um, but really just kind of work in the messaging that trying to market and get the word out that, you know, at the end of the day, there is a person behind the clothing that you're wearing. If you're buying a $25 t-shirt, that means somebody wasn't making a livable wage making that t-shirt. Um, and I, I think most people aren't really cool with that. They just haven't given it the whole you know, think through, or maybe just don't have the funds to spend that much on a, um, you know, on a $45 tech shirt. But my hope, my hope is that, you know, through offering repairs and trying to extend that life of that shirt, like I know that the products that I make will last for many, many more years, you know, that $25 t-shirt that'll last you two seasons if you're doing activities in it. Um, and then it'll, you know, be pretty gross and ratty and whatever. Um, but if you make that little bit more investment early on and every time you take a spill and you tear something, uh, you can send it back and I can repair it. I just, I just think that's a better way to do things. And I, it's how we used to do stuff, you know, until 
our whole economy got so globalized and interconnected, which, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, but I think just in a more in terms of sustainability, it's not the most sustainable way to do uh, clothing. And I do think you have a really well thought out kind of like lineup of products. I mean, you have the fleeces that are like, you know, really high use. I mean, they're very, you can just wear them a lot. So, and same thing, like the sun hoodies in the summer. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know about other people, but I just, I live in sun hoodies all summer. You know, I don't like wearing sunscreen and we're often outside. So uh, something, a really lightweight sun hoodie is like a becoming like a staple outdoor piece. To me, it seems like a really well thought out lineup. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm definitely, I'm always, I'm always trying to think about the best way to, you know, lay things out and get the offerings out. That's probably one of the biggest challenges that I have is how to offer as much as I want to offer and as much as I know I can make, but also not overwhelm people. I, I know that my website can sometimes be a little overwhelming. And so that's kind of a constant adjustment to try to figure out how to just streamline things, offer what people want, but also still allow them to customize, um, you know, for some particulars, some people want big pouch pockets, some people don't, but on the back end for me, it's not the easiest thing, you know, because every time I offer something on the website, I've personally made that piece that I'm then taking photos of. So, you know, it's tough to say like, oh, here's all these other options because all those other options mean I need to make that many more pieces, uh, which just takes away from, you know, time for orders that are already placed. And so it's really just like a time management thing to figure out what I can get up on the website. You should make one with no options and then one with all of the options. And then you just need two photos. So I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about how you develop your actual patterns too, because I know, I mean, it's a little bit of sewing I've done, like the pattern development and like the process, the construction process is one of the other kind of puzzles that needs to be figured out for any piece. And, you know, we're working with you uh, through the, with the Catamount Trail Association on like our 40th anniversary, uh, some pieces with you. We've got a hoodie, a zip hoodie and a crew neck. And when you, once we got, once we got the samples in the office and everybody tried them on and people were like really excited, not just about the fabric choice, but like the way they fit. And it seems like fit is one of those things that's very personal. Everybody has their own kind of like preferences for that. But pretty universally in our office, everybody really thought these fit well. And so I, I guess we're just curious. I'm, I'm just curious about how you go about developing a pattern. Are you taking inspiration from anywhere or is it just um, something that happens like you're slowly refining over time? Yeah, I mean, it's both of those things. Um, you know, like I'm constantly taking inspiration from like all, all of my ads are outdoor clothing companies advertising something at me. Cause I just, I save them all. Um, you know, every time I see something that I like, I screenshot it and try to think of, you know, it's a combination of a, a lot of companies, like a lot of the bigger companies, because they're paying so little for labor, they don't, I guess they're not necessarily thinking about how long it will take to make a particular feature which is like a very big part of my development because I'm like all right well yeah you know maybe doing this pouch pocket in this particular kangaroo style like looks really great but it adds an extra 45 minutes if I have to charge an extra 45 minutes to my customer they're not going to want that sweet pouch pocket like they'd probably rather have something simpler um but 
you know, like, so my pattern development is a lot of that. It's a lot of that combination of fitting well, and that's constantly getting adjusted. I, I pretty much use paper bags, uh, and duct tape and, you know, I add duct tape when I need to add stuff and I, you know, fair, fair things out. And, um, pretty much how everything started is I based, I really honed in a pattern based off of myself and my partner. And I kind of figured like, well, I'm kind of a woman's medium and pretty much every brand. And he's kind of a men's medium and pretty much every brand. And that seemed like a good starting point. And then I scaled from there. Um, and I really, I used my friends as models and testers a lot, uh, really tried to get feedback from them on both durability, but also that fit and, uh, try to be really critical. And it's one of those things where I probably, you know, you guys are putting them on going, Oh, they fit perfect. And I look at it and I go, well, you know, maybe this could go up like an eighth of an inch in the armpit or something, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fun process. There's, there's a lot to think through. And, um, I, I think it's very different than the way big companies do it. I think they're all using like CAD software and, doing stuff on computers and I'm very not tech savvy. Uh, so everything I'm doing is just pencil and paper and bending a ruler to make a smooth curve. And <laughs> a lot of this, a lot of the stuff I learned from sail making actually. That's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I mean, like for me, I put the medium on and it fits really well, but you know, I, like I want a nice, I, it would be nice if it was a little longer. I'm typically between like a medium and a tall or a large. Um, but it's also nice. Like you offer short and tall sizes. So um, it, it seems like a no-brainer just to get the medium tall, and so that's something else that I kind of we kind of appreciate is the fact that you have those options, which a lot of places don't. You know, you have to size up or size down, and you just have to live with whatever, however it fits. Right. Well, and that's that's the benefit of made to order. You know, you, if you're doing like working with a manufacturer, they have minimums that they need to make in each size. And so you're buying a big bulk and you're kind of guessing at sizes that people would want. And so you try to just take compromises where, you know, like, okay, you know, people can deal with sleeves a little too long. So maybe we'll leave the sleeves a little bit longer, but because everything for me is made to order, I can offer, you know, somebody can send me a message and be like, Hey, you know, like I'm kind of like a large in a, in the chest, but I'm, you know, four foot 10 and I need it to be like a lot shorter and like, that's fine too. So even outside of the short and tall offerings, like if you're, you know, not anywhere on that standards size spectrum, like I can do that and it's really not a problem. That's awesome. So you do take, people are, can contact you about kind of like semi-custom or custom pieces. Yep. Yeah. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't advertise it just cause I don't have like, uh, I, I just don't have the logistics, the behind the scenes logistics figured out. Um, to really be able to spend the extra hour on, you know, every, every order uh, to do them super custom. But yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of people are coming all different shapes and sizes. And so it's, it's not a problem for me to make some of those adjustments. And, you know, you typically when people order something one time and they get it and it fits and they know they save those sizes and they come back to me and they go, Hey, like that fit just right. Like, or, you know, I could use it a little bit shorter, a little longer. And I can either make that adjustment um, you know, if somebody gets something and it ends up being too long, I can just shorten it up a little bit. Um, if somebody gets something and it's too short, I can 
add cuffs or, you know, other ways to lengthen it. It's cool to hear your kind of commitment to like keeping your products going for as long as possible. Um, can you, I feel like that, that, that also kind of leads into kind of your idea, your sourcing, uh, how you source materials. Uh, can do you want to talk a little bit about that and your kind of ideas about sustainably sourcing the materials that you use? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, like I've, I've been doing a lot of research on this and you can get, depending on what parts of the internet you're looking at, you can get arguments going in any different direction. Um, but, you know, I've generally, my, my gut feeling is that I, for all the issues in America, I trust that our labor regulations and our environment, environmental regulations are at a certain standard that I'm happy with. And I feel like there's oversight um, and some amount of accountability. And so I feel like if I'm purchasing fabrics that are made in the U.S., I'm getting all those positives that come with it. Um, so Polar Tech, all of their made in the U.S. stuff is also very compliant. Um, so, you know, working with the military and they really work from the ground up made in the U.S.A., uh, so I'm really excited to work with Polar Tech, you know, for that. And some of my other suppliers, too. Like, I, I'm really pretty strict with the Made in the USA. I didn't didn't start out that way. Um, so I'm at this point, I do still have some fabrics that were made overseas. Um, but I that's really my goal is to get to 100% Made in the USA. I think I'm probably like 95% there right now. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's a pretty important part of what I'm doing. That's great. And then there's something you, when we were talking, there was something about, you mentioned about dead stock. Is that something, do you use that for, is that something you try to do for all of your source fabrics or is that something that when it's available, how does that, and what is dead stock? Yeah, that's, that's really when it's available. Um, but so Polar Tech as, you know, as a company, they, they actually have this really cool system. So they do, you know, the massive companies, so like the Patagonia, the North Face, the people who've worked to develop a lot of the Polar Tech fabrics, they will purchase specific fabrics and specific colors from Polar Tech directly in big quantities. And, you know, if a roll is a slightly different tint than what they were looking for, or they don't necessarily use all the fabric, rather than throwing it out, which is kind of what the common practice in apparel is, um, they will send it back to Pol- Polar Tech will buy it back from those companies. And then it goes into this next chain down, which is smaller quantities of that's called dead stock is, you know, fabric that otherwise would have gotten tossed that Polar Tech has since bought back. And then they sell it to smaller manufacturers like me. And so everything Polar Tech that I have, that's all dead stock. Um, so, you know, initially early on, I was buying the more, the cheaper price dead stock, which was made overseas. Um, it was still dead stock, but now I'm committed to USA made dead stock. And that all comes from Polar Tech. Um, yeah, and it's really cool. And then even like, even there's another chain below them too. So when I was first getting started and not needing to order 40 to 60 yard rolls, you can buy from, it's called uh, Mill Yardage, and it's in Rollinsford, New Hampshire. And this is part of Polar Tech system. And you can order a yard at a time um, of whatever material. And it's definitely higher priced, um, but, you know, it means you can try out your project. You know, I mean, you can make their own gear, give it a go. And um, 
yeah, they're, they're super, they're super cool company. I really enjoy it. Like when I, when I buy fabrics, I just drive down and pick them up and I love just kind of wandering around the warehouse there. I think they think I'm a little crazy, but it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. I can, I can only imagine all the different, I mean, as an apparel manufacturer, just like the, the nerdy apparel fabric stuff that you can get into. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, any, like anything you can nerd out just about, uh, you know, all the small details. Uh, along those lines, what is what is something or maybe some things that you know a typical buyer uh, or consumer might not kind of understand or know about um, the challenges? Maybe it's regarding uh, the challenges of producing uh, stuff locally, or just the idea that you're a, you're a one person show, right? And so if they order something from you, what is what are some of the things that somebody might not understand or uh, know about how their piece is being produced? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think for the most part, a lot of people who've found out about MOLA, it's been like through word of mouth or been through Instagram or been through like working with organizations like Catamount Trail. And, you know, just kind of, I think people who find out about MOLA that way understand that it's a slow process. Um, But I did like, you know, over the last holiday season, I did have, yeah, I put up a couple Instagram ads that reached outside of the normal network. And I had a bunch of people who placed orders and they were like, what it takes, you know, they placed them like a week before Christmas and wanted them for Christmas. And it's like, well, uh, uh-uh, <laughs> that's not going to work. Um, and so I, I think that's really, you know, the biggest disconnect that I've had has been when I've kind of reached maybe a little too far outside of network. Um, I tend to have less of those issues when I'm dealing with people locally. Yeah, that's nice. Well, and it is, I mean, it is, it's kind of nice from our perspective. It's like, you know, we're also getting to work with like class four designs on another project, another local manufacturer. And it's, I mean, there's something cool about knowing the person like touched every, you know, every piece of MOA gear that's out there, like you've had your hands on, like you cut that fabric, you pinned it together then sewed it together and then sent it to them. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it, it's my hope that, you know, when people, meet the person who made their clothes at the trailhead that like that piece of clothing will be a little bit more cherished, right. That they're going to be like, okay, you know, maybe I will wash it on cold and air dry it. And maybe I will, you know, bring it in to get repaired if it gets torn rather than, you know, just tossing it or donating it or whatever. Um, and you know, it's like, you know, whether or not somebody comes back to MOLA, you know, hopefully, hopefully they do. Hopefully they really like the product, but you know, at the end of the day, even if they leave with the idea of like, just caring more about where their clothes come from, I feel like I've accomplished something. That's great. Um, so looking forward three to five years, where do you hope to be? Yeah, I definitely, yeah, this is, this is like one of the biggest struggles that I'm trying to come up with is figuring out what the game plan going forward is. Um, Cause I'm kind of, I'm hitting a point where I'm getting pretty busy and it's getting hard to keep up with the demand. Um, But also, you know, like just paying attention to what other companies have done as they move into manufacturing, they start to sacrifice some of those initial visions and mission statements. And um, I don't know if you've ever read, let my people go surfing, read that a couple times. Now I do audio books a lot while I'm sewing. Um, But you know, I, th- I think one of Patagonia's, like, I think one of their big regrets is that they grew too quick. Um, they sacrificed a lot of their mission statement. And, like, you know, regardless of giving back to environmental efforts, 
I think they still recognize that, okay, well, you know, we're producing, you know, in all these places all around the world and shipping clothing all the way around the world. And people are buying a lot more than they need because they like the stuff, but we don't want them to keep buying more stuff. Um, so, you know, I want to grow and I want to grow in a way that allows me to keep doing this, you know, for forever. And, you know, it sticks around and it's a lasting brand, but I don't want to grow at the expense of, you know, really what my mission statement is. Um, and so that's, that's definitely a challenge. You know, I'm not going to hire somebody if I don't think I can pay them what they need to make to live in Vermont. Um, and also, you know, not just live here. Like I, you know, if I'm going to hire somebody to come help me, like they need to also be able to go enjoy all the sports. And unfortunately all the sports we do are very expensive. Um, so, you know, that's a part of it too, but that's, that's really like the big piece of the puzzle. I'm going in a lot of circles right now, trying to figure out exactly what, going forward looks like but if people have suggestions i'm all ears (laughs) that's great yeah well we wish you luck i mean you it's yeah making those transitions i can only imagine is challenging and requires a little bit of a leap um anytime you kind of like make a big change but it seems like you've got a good thing going so hopefully uh those pieces come together yeah so before we sign off uh is there anything else you might want to mention to the anybody that's listening out there go enjoy the outdoors. <laughs> I don't know. Spend, spend some time, spend some time on the lake. Even if you have to swim out there, it's pretty nice. Uh, spend some time in the mountains. Gives you good perspective. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Carolyn, for sharing your time with us and for working with Catamount Trail Association on our 40th anniversary project. Uh, there should be, by the time when this comes out, there should be about a week left in our pre-sale, assuming there's any are any quantities there's any material left um and yeah so we're it was it's been great working with you it's been great talking with you and we wish you the best of luck thank you appreciate it all right take care yeah you too